When I was a kid, I wanted to be a Christian priest, and now I'm a food writer. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Farley Elliott. Farley is the senior editor at Eater LA and author of Los Angeles Street Food, a history from tamaleros to taco trucks. His work appears nationally in the online print and digital video space, and you can follow him around the internet at his handle, at over over under. He's also the guy from that Tiny Hamsters Eating Tiny Burritos video. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Farley. Thanks for having me, Ben. Of course. I mean, this is a real pleasure for me because you might not know, but you've been indirectly responsible for so many of the restaurants I've hung out with my friends at, dates I've gone on, like the restaurants I've gone on for dates, and and just so many good memories uh, that all come back to Eater and your pieces. So it's really special to be able to talk to you today. And I guess I'm really curious how how you know you go from wanting to be a Christian priest to writing about food, but we'll, we'll get to that, I'm sure, throughout the course of this conversation. I, I want to I first start by asking you, I noticed on your Instagram bio, you wrote that you're a, quote, food writer, not food critic. And that really interested me um, because in your, in your writing, in your pieces, like the, and even the heat map, you know, it, it leads me to, to think about, oh, he's, he considers you know, this place favorable or, or maybe not as favorable. And I got curious, like, how do you make the distinction between food writer versus food critic? And what does that mean for your creative process? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And, and I think this is kind of an important distinction that does get lost. If you were to think about the job of a food writer, most people would assume that it is the nasty mean critic from Ratatouille or something like that. That's kind of the default mental image that people have. But the reality is I'm not anonymous, right? We can see each other on Zoom and I'm not a critic. My job primarily is not to anonymously go to a restaurant and say, you know, thumbs down to the green beans or anything like that. That's a very specific role that maybe... 15 to 25 people in America have. Um, I occupy a kind of third space where I'm essentially a sports reporter, but instead of the local team, I cover the local restaurants. And so my job is to know more than anybody else before anybody else about the comings and goings of the massive restaurant industry here in Southern California, primarily Los Angeles. Um, I put that in my bio a while ago because it does come up a lot. It is a sort of confusing thing. And I understand that the default is something that is slightly adjacent to what I do. But the reality is there's a certain amount of, um, you know, we have to pick and choose places to put on maps and that sort of stuff. But the day-to-day grind of what I do is news gathering. I get sources, I report on details, I give factual information to people. And that's much more the job of any other Metro beat reporter at any print newspaper in America, rather than being some long-winded guy who goes out and eats and talks about his meal. Totally. And I understand how at this stage you go out and cover your beat. As you mentioned, you have, I can only imagine how many dozens, hundreds of emails you're flooded with about this restaurant opening, come check out this place. And, uh, you know, I I understand that. But what I'm fascinated by is how you go about sifting through this mess and deciding, okay, this is, you know, this is something that's worthy of being covered. Oh, this is really fascinating. Let me check this out. 
And, you know, I've heard from food PR people, you are one of the few journalists who actually takes the time to even respond because you and your peers are getting, you know, bombarded with all these emails and you are kind enough to even just reply thank you, which goes a really long way for the food PR people I've spoken with. Well, yeah, if you've, if you've been talking to those folks and they have that to say about me, then I'll take that as a, as a kind credit. You know, to, to back up a little bit, I didn't start in this world with any sort of sense of understanding of how it works. I didn't move to Los Angeles with money. I moved with a backpack and a motorcycle. You know, I didn't have connections or friends. I got into food writing kind of by accident, but because I love this city and I love the storytelling that comes with it. And I think the only way that I was able to make it in those early days was by being the nicest guy in the room, answering every email and trying to show up. And, you know, I'm too dumb to read the books. I got to I gotta just be a boots on the ground kind of guy. And my first couple of years in LA were just eating at as many different taco stands as I could find, because where else could you eat a fantastic meal for five bucks and learn about the city and its neighborhoods and cultures along the way. And I try to take that to heart now. My coverage area technically goes up through San Luis Obispo County on the central coast of California, out to Palm Springs, down through Orange County and right here in Los Angeles. And that is a massive area with tens of millions of people we will never be able to cover it all with the depth that it deserves. But if I can pick places that I think are representative of a larger whole, or if I can pick places that are a peek into a larger story for people who may not necessarily have an understanding of that food or that community, then I think I'm doing my job right. I understand the attraction to trying as many taco trucks as possible. I, I think a lot of people would like to do that. I think what separates you from so many is your ability to, to give us the relevant information and distill it. And for somebody who maybe shares the same passion in you as you and wants to perhaps attempt something similar, how did you get good about at writing about food? Because I think, for example, so many people might appreciate the Beatles, but if you tried to have them review an album professionally, I wouldn't know where to start, for example. So how did you approach actual food writing? How did you get good at that? Uh, it's a great question. And, you know, when I first started, I was writing for like Serious Eats and LA Weekly and a bunch of other freelance opportunities. And Serious Eats specifically, they're a publication based out of New York City and they wanted kind of weekly taco reviews. I was doing much more of the, this is good, this is bad sort of stuff. And you realize pretty quickly, the word for tortilla is tortilla, that's it. <laughs> and you can find other ways to talk about the place, but if you're just talking about the food, you're gonna hit a dead end pretty quickly. And so that's the kind of way that I've, I've tried to uh, approach it. Um, I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I wrote a story about a place called Art's Famous Chili Dogs down in South LA that's unfortunately since closed. And you know, this guy Art Elkin moved out from Chicago and claims to have invented the chili dog. He of these very spurious restaurant food claims that you see all over America. And he, had a chili dog that had no casing on it. And so it was meant to not offer you the kind of traditional hot dog snap, but a little bit of melding with chili and bun and cheese and dog all together. And he was convinced that it was the best way to eat a hot dog. And you know, he started in 1938 and then all throughout the forties and fifties, that neighborhood starts to change. It becomes through the sixties, seventies and eighties, what we now know as uh, you know, traditional South Central and all of the uh, issues that have come with that of a neighborhood being left behind by its city through a de-urbanization and white flight. And he died in 1990. And in 1992, the LA riots happened. And there's a part in LA history where Reginald Denny, this guy who was driving a 18 wheeler got pulled out of a truck and beaten on live television as the news helicopters watched and police weren't able to do anything. And at that intersection in Florence and Normandy is where Art's famous chili dog is. You could see it in the helicopter footage from that day. And so this white guy who moved out of Chicago in the 1930s to found a chili dog empire that never happened on the West Coast, 
pushing through the decades to become this kind of like racial flashpoint tension at a literal intersection on national television for his family to then sell that place to an African-American couple who grew up living in the neighborhood and went to the high school nearby. I mean, there's no more Angelino story than that. And the reality is, I don't think the chili dog's all that good. It's about everything, but, you know, and that's the kind of thing, if you can drill down into the heart and history of a place, then I think you're in good hands. So at this point, fast forward to today, now that LA, you know, you have your traditional spots, but you also have so many new spots popping up. How do you then make the determination of this is worth covering? This is something where that might not have the history, like you mentioned, but I, I, you know, I'm attracted to it for whatever reason. I want to learn more about it. I want to write about it. Yeah, the reality is there are certain players that maybe are a little bit more prominent than others. Um, this is a digital modern landscape with social media. You know, all of these things kind of go into the big pot and you have to figure out what you think readers are going to be attracted to, but also what interests and attracts you. Um, we're a county of 10 million people. You know, I'm, I'm a white guy from a small town in northern New York. Statistically speaking, anything I think about L.A. is probably wrong or at least very, very limited in its scope. And so uh, I try to keep my own personal sense of what I've learned will do well on the site, but also feel free to pull in other voices and pull in other sections of the county. And, you know, we may run stories that don't do that well traffic wise, because we believe that they have an opportunity to grow our base of people. And we should be covering those stories regardless. So it's a little mix of everything. And I'll tell you this, Ben, the, the thing that really kind of annoys me is when from an outside looking in, uh, a reader or some other competing publication or whoever it happens to be has this general idea that the only places that we're covering are places that have robust PR operations or something. It's simply not the case. The vast majority of restaurants don't have that. When we talk about the El Russo of the world in Boyle Heights, flour tortillas, they end up getting on a food and wine best new restaurant list in America because we were able to get there kind of early on and talk about Walter and the wonderful food that he's making. That's the stuff that really sticks with me. That's the stuff that really matters to me. We do talk about about David Chang because David Chang is a big deal in the national restaurant scene. But I spend a lot of my time dining and talking about places like El Russo too. I, I love that. It's one of the things that has attracted me to Eater personally is discovery of things. You know, D David Chang, I will learn about through many different outlets. And I, you know, I've been to his restaurants. I think he's a fascinating chef. What, what I think is awesome is what exactly what you just said is I can come to Eater and I can get I can get somebody like David Chang and learn about what he's up to now, but also, you know, learn more about a place like El Russo. You, you do different kinds of pieces. So whether it's looking at a traditional spot or a new restaurant that's popped up and when you're, when you're going through actually the process of writing this piece, I'm curious, like, do you have the food on your desk and you're writing about it? You're typing at it, you know, with a keyboard over here and your food, you know, a couple inches away. Is there is there some unique tenet of your process that you have found consistent that helps you as you're writing about food? Yeah, there's different types of stories. To your point, there, there's the, this place has been open for a little while and not that many people know about it. We think it's really fantastic and emblematic maybe of a larger cultural shift. Um, those are the sort of places that we really, really thrive on talking about with food in our hand, going and eating and interviewing the people and having that kind of visceral experience. But my job is also to write multiple stories a day, five days a week about places that may not literally exist yet, you know, 
David Chang's next restaurant in Los Angeles might not open for another 18 months. We're talking about it now because we want to own that space. Early on, the Eater ethos was to just kind of like run everything into the ground. We want to talk about stuff, blanket it with coverage to the extent that no other publication even has a way in. When I first started, I was writing, you know, five to seven stories a day, five days a week. And so in those moments, you've got to be a little bit more careful. And it's a lot of the, the basics of journalism of, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them and tell them and then tell them what you told them. And we're constantly repeating ourselves. But uh, it just depends. It depends on the kind of story that you, you want to tell. I do think, especially these days, as we've slowed down and taken a broader and wider look at the city and its, and its dining scene, uh, getting the voice of people, getting the voice of workers in particular into those stories is a uh, shifting cultural narrative for us and one that's increasingly important and I'm happy to embrace. So it, it really just kind of comes down to the type of story that you're willing to tell. Yeah, and like you said, the time you have to tell it. I can only imagine how much of a crunch you are and if you're cranking out five to seven stories a day that is uh that is quite a feat <laughs> yeah and some of those you know to your point from before are pr stories and people who can put something in my lap that's pretty fully formed that i can then have ownership of and put it on the site before somebody else and when i'm chasing a publication that has hundreds of employees like the LA Times, my job is to operate with accuracy and with speed. Now, we don't necessarily need to do that with every single story, but sometimes that's just the nature of the beast. So I try to say that we can do it all. I can do a map about breakfast burrito places. I can do a story on David Chang. I can do a piece on why the hot restaurant across town actually has a problem with like labor issues. And I can also write about the cool taco spot in a part of town you don't traditionally frequent it's all possible on the site and sometimes even in the same day yeah and i mean your ability to keep this breakneck speed throughout you know the five plus years now that you've been at eater is really exceptional and you know i i think what what's interesting to me is i imagine you you just brought up the la times i imagine in 2015 when you when you were joined eater full-time that was probably the big you know the big competitor, so to speak, that a foodie in LA might look to, you know, you might check out Jonathan Gold, if he if he was around at the time, I think he was, um, you might check out the food critics of the LA Times, you might check out Eater. And now it's just so saturated, you have food influencers left and right, yet Eater LA has remained a trusted source that we all still check. So I'm curious, from your perspective, how has that evolved? And how do you think Eater has continued to be a trusted go to source? Because I think, in LA, at least, we, we talk about LA Times, we talk about Eater and Infatuation and food influencers, and it would have been very easy to get sucked into this ecosystem and drowned out, frankly, by how many voices there are. Yet I, I still always find myself looking at Eater, and when I don't know where to go for dinner, I check the heat map. That's just Good. me. Good. Well, <laughs> well, you're hoping to keep the lights on. I certainly appreciate it. No, I, I think it's a, a valid point. There is a ton of competition, especially on the social media side. What I don't want to do is um, I, I don't want to chase as much as possible. Days where I wake up and the LA Times has a story before me are bad days. And I try to have as few bad days as possible. And for me, I have a dining budget. My job is to eat out. My job is to, you know, especially pre-pandemic, shake hands, be in restaurants. I used to talk about this triangle. Um, if you operated in the industry, you know, I want you to 
see the work that I do on the site and think that I do a good job on the side of representing the industry and the people that I talk about well. I want you to see me in your restaurant or out in the physical space and think that I'm a pretty nice person. You know, if I walk in a restaurant and I demand a free meal, that's bad for business. I don't want to take money out of anybody's pocket. And then the third part of that triangle is I want you in the back of your mind to think that I'm a good enough journalist that I can figure out your secret anyway. So if you like me and you like the work that I do and you're a little bit afraid of me because you think I've got the skills to pull it off, you're probably just going to come to me directly with the information I want anyway. And that's the space where I can really, really own and succeed. How That's fascinating. And the, your ability to translate that over social media, I think, has helped as a reader. I think that's helped, you know, keep Eater as a go-to source because I think, you know, just going on social Eater posts stand out to me. Like when I'm scrolling on Instagram, I will pause and see. I, I, I recognize an Eater post when I see it and I will stop and I will look into it. How have you found that translate? And by the way, the Hulu series that Eater just came out with, I don't know if you had any involvement, maybe in the LA episode at least. That was fascinating because I'm just on Hulu looking for the next thing to watch. And there's a brand I recognize and love in Eater. And I now binge that series. So I'm curious, like how what you just said has manifested in all kinds of different ways outside your traditional pieces. So yeah, I think a lot of social media and the Instagram side, we have a team out of New York that is fantastic at all of the social media stuff, way, way more than I could ever be. You know, though those folks, when they talk to us about the engagement metrics and all that kind of stuff, it's really about what are we offering that is within our kind of branded ecosystem that people, that's gonna make them stop and scroll because they know it's not just a random piece of content, they know it's an eater piece of content. This year in particular, we've been really pushing a lot more of pushing uh, the images from our stories onto our social media sites, maybe with a headline or maybe with a paragraph of description to kind of get people to pull in. It's not the same, you know, four years ago, it was, you know, unicorn cotton candy and sprinkles and everything or charcoal ice cream, you know, that's the kind of stuff that eventually you glaze over, but we're trying to offer a little bit more narrative, a little more story, a little more color beyond those kind of traditional stock images. And I think that's proven really successful. If you have the brand association from going to the website and then you see us on social, it matters a little more. It carries a little more weight because we've got the depth of reporting that you've trusted us in the past. The Hulu series is just another extension of that, you know, as we continue to brand out. I want people to see Eater and interact with Eater in a variety of different ways. Just like, you know, you and your friends, when you figure out where you're going to eat or, you know, one of your family members comes into town or something, maybe it's a thing they read in the newspaper. Maybe it's something they saw on Eater or on social media, or they checked Yelp or whatever the case may be. The more of those different pockets of expectation and information we can have an Eater branded hand in, the better off it'll be for us. I was really fortunate to work pretty heavily on the LA episode and kind of showcase the city and all of its wonderful cross-cultural influences. And I think that's only a positive for us to be able to move further into those TV spaces and give people a real look into the city that I love. I want to quickly plug the series for anybody who hasn't yet had the chance to check it out because it's not just blanket, you know, cool spots in LA. Each episode has an awesome theme. So the LA episode, if I remember correctly, is eating from the hood of your car in Los Angeles. And you, you, you know, you mentioned some great, so you, you helped guide them to some great spots. I don't want to spoil it for people, but just check out the episode. Maya Rudolph narrates the series. So it's that much more fun. And I remember I just saw the New York one where it's like eating at the ass crack of dawn in New York. So it's, it's, it's fun little, you know, themes like that. And it's cool to see how that plays out throughout the series and different cities as well. So just a quick plug for that. 
Um, and I want to I want to ask you about the heat map. I can't let you go without asking you about the heat map because this is what drew me to Eater and has kept me coming back for more. <laughs> How do you determine what qualifies for the heat map and when a restaurant is ready to be retired from it? This is probably the most contentious thing we're going to talk about today. Heat maps, essential restaurants, you know, legacy, these kinds of things carry a lot of weight because the reality is we draw a lot of eyeballs to the site and those people translate into dollars in the door. And we take that responsibility really, really seriously as harbingers for the uh, arbiters, I guess, for the industry and, and for people on choosing where they're going to dine out like yourself. Um, the heat map is traditionally places certainly that are under a year um, traditionally places that are somewhere between the kind of you know two and ten month mark where we're hitting that sweet spot where they, they're up and running and they've got a lot of buzz behind them maybe that some of that buzz is generated in-house because we've been excited and breathlessly sort of covering it but you also know, you know, you spend enough time reading the food media landscape and you get a sense of which places are going to have the kind of early backing, especially pre-pandemic, to be successful. It's been a little trickier these days trying to point out what hot means when people are making fantastic cakes out of their, you know, home bakeries in Glendale or something. But ultimately, the heat map is meant to be a sub one year window into great new busy talked about restaurants around the city. And before the pandemic, the big thing was you know, Ben Leventhal used to be a co-creator of Eater and he went on to co-found Brezzi. And his thing was like, it needs to be a restaurant that if I fly into the city on a Wednesday night and on you know Thursday and Friday, I wanna go eat out of these different places, there should, if not be a line out the door, at least a wait once you go in and talk to the front of house staff. And I think that's a great metric. You know, We're a county of 10 million people. so. What are the busy, buzzy spots all over the city that are drawing that kind of attention? Interesting. I'm sure a lot of restaurateurs are listening eagerly. And uh, <laughs> it, there you go. There you have it straight out of Farley's mouth. So before we get into fun little rapid fire questions, I got to ask, what's uh, something that you've eaten recently in L.A. that you've absolutely loved? And it's it's so much uh, right now. The the kind of pizza renaissance that's happened, especially the deep dish kind of pan pizza renaissance, places like DoDaddy in downtown, they have really changed the game for that mix of comfort and quality and ease of use. You can order it in DMs on Instagram. That's the sort of stuff that is going to continue on post-pandemic street food, all the renaissances that have been happening there, whether it's you know the hot chicken thing from two years ago to people making really beautiful, inexpensive, highly flavorful Venezuelan food, whatever it happens to be. You know, those are the things that keep me motivated. It's going to be a really, really sad six to 10 months still for restaurants as we try to come out of this, you know, post pandemic vaccinated world. But what gives me hope is just knowing that people at their individual street food and home restaurant level can continue to feed the communities that matter most to them. Awesome. And on that happy note, we'll go into rapid fire questions. Firstly, what's an app that you can't live without? Oof, it's got to be Instagram. I mean, not only is it, I'm a pretty reachable guy on email, but Instagram DMs is where so much of my work gets done these days. Who would you like to play you in a movie about your life? Living or Dead? Sure. James Gandolfini. Oh, good choice. Um, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? The ability to be like a surprisingly good singer, I think it just to bust that out at a party <laughs> is like such a rabbit in the hat trick. I love that. Where's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? Belize. Ever since I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I've heard it's beautiful. That's on my list as well. Uh, what's a song you like to jam to right now? 
Nathaniel Rateliff in the Night Sweats, I Need Never Get Old. All right. We have a Spotify playlist where we add each of our guest song recs. So that'll be up there. And uh, lastly, where can people find your work and follow you on social media? You can find me all over the internet at over, over, under. Um, my name is Farley Elliott. People always either don't get it right, call me Harley, misspell my last name, whatever the case is. So years ago, I just became over, over, under as a, a small catchphrase. It used to be um, overworked, overfed, underpaid, and now it's just over, over, under. So you can you can find me there on Instagram and Twitter. And you know I'm sure I'll join Clubhouse someday when I finally get enough <laughs> invites. But until then, you know where to see me. <laughs> that is so funny to me that people butchered Farley Elliott. That seems pretty straightforward, but uh, <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot of a lot of women I dated growing up had like fathers who would you know purposefully or forgetfully call me Harley. That's a real one. Um, Elliott with one T. My last name has two T's. You know, it's a whole thing. And I, I just I would literally get bounce back emails from people who would try to contact me and realize that they'd spelled my name wrong. So I try to make it as easy as possible. So over, over, under. There you go. Simple, simpler even than Farley Elliott. And uh, if you're interested in the podcast, you can check us out on Instagram at HDYDpod. Farley, thank you so much, man. You don't even know what this means to me. As I was like thinking back when I was in my dorm at USC looking for places to take someone out, (laughs) consulting the heat map. It's really special to be able to talk to you. And I look forward to reading more of your awesome pieces and discovering great new places around town. Thanks to you and the great work your team is doing over at Eater. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And I don't know if, you know, in other episodes, if you circle back on why people had a different job opportunity or idea of what they wanted to do in their early days, I wanted to be a a Christian, uh, you know, stand up in front of people and talk because that's the thing I love to do is tell stories and get people excited. So I really love hearing from folks like you and, and you've really done me a service by having me on. So thank you. I loved seeing that you were at UCB as well, by the way, I took, uh, improv through the second level and, uh, I, I'm really bummed that UCB isn't around now, but I'm uh, I'm hopeful that post-pandemic we'll all be enjoying improv shows live again. And I, I'm sad that I never saw you at UCB. I'm sad I missed your shows. Yeah, well, you know, if you came on the right night, I would have been happy to have you there. But improv is full of missed opportunities as much as it is great successes. So next time, you know, post-pandemic UCB comes back, you and me will get a drink at Birds after a show. It'll be great. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Farley. Take care. Thanks, Ben.